Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew, some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined and join the angelic train. The year is 1753. A Senegalese girl born of a name never to be known by the world, but known by a name to be synonymous with pioneer, poet, and icon. 1761 saw her capture, but not her oppression. Named after the ship, she came on from Senegal to Boston. Phyllis Wheatley would go on to live an unconventional enslaved life, beginning at only seven years old as a domestic servant to the master, John Wheatley's wife, Susanna. Taught to read and write, becoming fluent in English after only two years, before going after Greek and Latin and immersed in geography, astrology, the Bible, British literature and history, Phyllis became hungry for academia and culture and wanted not only this phenomenon to occur from the third person, in her early teens, Phyllis began trying out poetry and literature for herself and found out she was nothing short of astounding, especially by 18th century white America's standards. At 13, she wrote her first published poem about two men to survive near drowning at sea, which was featured in the Newport Mercury. By the age of 18, Phyllis had around 28 completed poems and was eager to publish an entire poetry book. And with the help and support of her atypical enslavement household, ran adverts in the Boston newspaper for interested publishers. Not too shocking was the reluctance of American colonialist publishers to take a young African literary seriously, even with the backing of a prominent slave family. And so, onto greener and less prejudiced past as the Wheatley household went. With the hopes of a more open reception, Mrs. Wheatley sent over Phyllis's poem on the death of the Reverend George Whitefield to the Countess of Huntingdon, Selina Hastings, an abolitionist and a familiar with Whitefield who got Wheatley in contact with a bookseller willing to publish Phyllis's works. Travelling to London in 1773 with her slaver's son, Phyllis published her first edition poetry book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religions and Morals, the first ever poetry volume by an African-American, by an enslaved person and third American woman. And boy, was it a success in more ways than one. With a preface of 17 Boston men, including American founding father John Hancock confirming her authorship, the poetic phenomenon impressed the London audience with her natural literary talent, and that was only the surface of her poetic success. Once attention grew around her enslaved status, and at a time in England where her legal take on slavery was seen as contrary to English law, despite England being the original orchestrator, in theory stated that any enslaved person became freed once they arrived in England. And whilst her poetic prestige may have helped her cause, it was in October 1773, a month after Phyllis returned to Boston, that she was officially free in America also. Some historians believe she made her freedom a condition of her return. Many of Wheatley's poems were in reverence of people and barely referenced her enslaved status at the time, though there were euphemisms in many, and her most popular poem, On Being Brought From Africa to America, our opening poem, was arguably the only poem where she directly confronted her enslavement. George Washington, a subject of many of her poems and to whom she sent one of her written works to in 1775, invited her to visit him at his headquarters in March of 1776, which she did. In His Excellency General George Washington, Wheatley's last two stanzas were as follows. One century scarce performed its destined round, when Gaelic powers Columbia's fury found. And so may you, whoever dares disgrace, the land of freedom's heaven-defended race. 
Fixed to the eyes of nations on the scales, for in their hopes Columbia's arm prevails. Anon Britannia droops the pensive head, while round increase the rising hills of dead. Ah, cruel blindness to Columbia's state, lament thy thirst of boundless power too late. Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side, thy every action let the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine, with gold unfading. Washington, be thine. Her later life was far less glamorous. After the deaths of her master and mistress Susanna and John Wheatley in 1778, she struggled to navigate free life in 18th century America, even with her newlywed husband. Having been unsuccessful at confirming a publisher for her second poetry book, due in part to the building tensions with the British and later the Revolutionary War, her poetry career was put to rest, though not her notoriety or her pioneering achievements. Today at the Boston's Women's Memorial and inside Boston's old South Meeting House lie statues of Phyllis Wheatley in commemoration of her incredible life at a time that wanted to see only her downfall. Her talent shone through the prejudice of that time and her short poetic career did not in any way detract from her indisputable craft. Being a black woman, making her voice known and valued by the masses is something in line with today's guest, founder of Black Ballad, an award-winning media company aimed at black women. Toby Oridane makes it her mission to bring black women's voices, experiences, and talent to the forefront, creating an active community of black women in the UK with her platform and increasing the number of black women journalists in the media and publishing industry. Welcome back to the How Did I Get Here podcast brought to you by Black Cultural Archives, where we delve into the journeys behind the success stories of those in the arts and heritage sector to give you better insight into how to step into these careers. I'm your host, Bintiyad, and in this episode, we explore the media industry with Toby Oridane, founder of Black Ballad. Before we get started, could you just quickly introduce yourself? Who is Toby Oridane? Um, I am a 33-year-old uh, British Nigerian Londoner, mum of two, and I am the founder and CEO of Black Ballad. Black Ballad is the essential uh, membership platform for black women in Britain and beyond. We create digital journalism, events, and community uh, for black women Um so that's me, really, person professionally. Mm, amazing. And so how did you first get started in journalism? Um, I feel like my my start or my intrigue started when I was a teenager. My dad got me a subscription to Cosmo Girl. <laughs> and I literally had my head buried in this, like, magazine in the playground. Um, and I was just so fascinated with how magazines made people feel I guess it made me feel and I really wanted to create that feeling um so that's how I kind of got my interest or sparked mm. my interest and then it was just interning I applied to internships got a few internships and then from there was able to build on the internships and connections that I made mm. okay and so you said that you did a few internships when you kind of started your career did, how did you go about securing opportunities? Did you kind of wait for, after the internship stage, did you kind of wait for them to come at you or did you seek them out? Like, how did you go about I it? I seeked them out. I was that annoying person that would call the, <laughs> um, it would be like the PA or editorial assistant and be like, uh, did you, do you have any internships? Or I'd call like the receptionist at like a magazine house. Mm. 
And I was just really kind of, I guess, scrappy with it. Cause I was kind of like, if you're not going to respond to my email, I'm going to call you. <laughs> um, and then actually what, what also helped was I had a part-time job. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers this shop called Oasis. It was a high street store, clothing mm. store. And they had a magazine. It was just like an internal magazine. So then I asked if I could have an internship there. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was like, any route to write is a good route. I got an internship at the magazine. And then they said, well, we can only give you like a week or two. But mm. you can intern in a PR office. Um, so I inter- interned in the PR office for like six, seven months. Oh. <laughs> and then what happened was, this is really random. An old magazine called Company had a um had a feature on the how interns dress to their work and the PR manager at the time thought I dressed really cool and I ended up doing a shoot for company about being a PR and like my fashion sense and then I asked her for an internship directly and she gave me an internship so I was all about every opportunity like whether it be part-time job or phoning you up I would use any opportunity to get yeah um work Seize the day. I have other questions coming up, but what you just said made me think of how I think sometimes when we're in situations where opportunities like that arise, it wasn't necessarily put in front of you. You had to, there was extra steps you needed to take Mm. to get it, but that was definitely the groundwork for you to get there. Yeah. How do you kind of overcome the shyness or maybe like fear of rejection when it comes to asking for those opportunities, like in someone's face, like give me an internship, please. Do you know, I'll be honest, I think age plays a massive part. I was really young. Mm. Um, so I felt like I had nothing to lose right. then because like I didn't have an internship. I didn't know anyone, I didn't have any mm. connections. So if you told me no, like, well, what am I losing? I don't care. Right, yeah. Um, but I definitely think as I've gotten older, I've definitely been more cautious. But what has motivated me, I guess, to still ask for opportunities or to be just a scrappy Mm. is that you just never know what someone's going to say. Like you can kind of imagine it and play in your mind that, okay, this person's going to say yes, this person's going to say no, but you just don't know. Um, You just don't know what opportunities on the other side of the door. Mm. And I always, and I always say I'd rather, um, I'd rather have embarrassment than always wonder why Mm. embarrassment goes wondering why stays with you for a lot longer and that takes up a lot more mental space Mm -hmm. in my mind so for me it's just better for my mental capacity to just kind of do it if they say yes great if they say no Mm. then I'm I'm embarrassed for like a day or (laughs) I'm thinking about it for like maybe a week but if I'm wondering why I'm the type of person will wonder why for months Mm. and that just is not conducive yeah and regret is really hard to to overcome in a situation like that and no it's not a no till it's a no right Mm -hmm. (laughs) so tell us a little bit about black ballad yeah uh, so black ballad um started in my bedroom in i'm gonna say east london because we're Mm -hmm. in south and i'm an (laughs) east london forever type of girl um i started black ballad because the the journalism industry is incredibly white, is incredibly incestuous. If you don't know a certain person, you're not getting an internship. I always say the features editor or the features writer at L is the person who's likely going to be the features editor at Harper's Bazaar. Mm. And like, if you're the fashion intern at Vogue, then you're likely going to be the next fashion writer at Marie Claire. Mm. You have to be in that circle. And that circle at the time was very middle class. It was very white. Um, and that just wasn't me. My parents are working class and I'm black. Um, so I just thought there was an opportunity. Um, and there was nothing I felt that was bringing together 
the lifestyle of black women where you could kind of talk about politics, hair, mm. sex, uh, work. Um, it was all very American. So I had people, black women in my life asking me about like, where do I go if I want something that's all together? Um, so then in 2014, in my bedroom in East London, I decided to orchestrate this publication of the thing that I wanted to see and I brought it to life. And as I said, Black Ballad, we're a membership. Mm-hmm. Um, so we create digital journalism, we create events, we work, we work with brands um, and we create community for black women um, and black women pay a membership fee to access all the content, to mm. access all the events, to access all the lifestyle perks that we work with brands to deliver to black women. And if you can't afford a membership, then you get like a reduced like sort of right. version. So you'll get like free, free articles and some mm. newsletters and then you get the opportunity to come to some events. So yeah, we are a membership for black women creating digital journalism, events, working with brands to deliver all lifestyle perks. So that would be like free hair products mm. or free we've got an event coming up where it's like a free screening for black women in our membership and then um community it's really important that we foster a community and to us that's like black women forming deep sisterhoods or even Mm. professional opportunities for each other Mm. um so that's black ballad in a a nutshell (laughs) that's amazing and was there like a particular spark that led you to create black ballad yeah, um, I just couldn't get a job in the industry. I was like <laughs> freelancing all over the place. And I'm someone that really likes stability and routine. Mm-hmm. And I was just so sick of like being rejected for jobs. And like, as I said earlier, you kind of start to realize the pattern of who's getting the jobs. Right. And in, 20, in 2013, 2014, when I was looking for a job, there was not language that we have today like we weren't using um misogyny in a while we weren't mm. using microaggressions that conversation didn't exist but when you're looking at who's getting the jobs and they're all very white you know what it yeah. is but the language was not there mm. and i was just sick of white women telling me no to be honest <laughs> i was like why and white men i was like why are white men working in magazines for women but I'm not mm, like, I was yeah. just like, how are you going to tell me how I should wear my hair or what career I should, I should take mm. when you have no idea what it's like mm. to be. No lived experience. Yeah. A, a, not even just a black woman, but a woman in general. Mm. So I just was like, yeah, like, I don't know if I can swear on podcast, but I was just like, you know, no. you know <laughs> I was just like, F it. like I'm just going to do my own thing. Yeah. So it was just, it was actually rejection that, um, fueled the fire for me to start Mm. this business amazing well they're ruining the day now i'm sure (laughs) yes so since black ballad so you started in 2014 right um you said earlier that at the time the industry was very middle class and white does that mean that you think it's changed a bit how has it changed over the past what 10 years that you've been running it almost i think it has changed but i don't think it's changed enough Mm. Like, I think that a lot of black women are still probably freelancers. I don't know if they have, like, um, permanent jobs. I feel like when I think about black women who are working for magazines, they're very few and far between. Mm. I know there is, you know, the editor of Elle is a black woman and she's a black American woman. Mm. And there's nothing wrong in that. But where is the black British female editor? Yeah. Like, and I think, like, it's amazing that Edward Enfall is the editor of Vogue, but all these, you know, magazines that are British this and British that, 
I would love to know where the black British female editor mm-hmm. is. Um, she's not there. And I think that's very interesting, actually. Um, so, yeah, I think we're getting a lot more free- freelance work. Um, I think, you know, there was a phase where black writers were coming in to talk about race and race only. Mm. I think we're starting to get out of that now. Yeah. I'm seeing, you know, black black women talk about more things beyond their race. Things are a bit more yeah, <laughs> ambivalent. Um, so I think it's changing. I just don't think it's changed enough. I don't mm. think it's changing fast enough in the right directions. Mm. That's interesting because what you were saying about um, the lack of kind of black British women in the industry, but also at the higher, higher levels, yeah. um, where you might find more black men at that level, even if that's still lacking. Do you feel like there's a... What what's your perception of the kind of relationship between black men and women in the in the journalism industry specifically? I mean, I think you know Edward is the only black man mm. in that industry, um, so I wouldn't like to put out a perception. I think unless I'm wrong that they, like you know black men mm-hmm. have been able to break through. I think he's one of like a rare a rare incident. Mm. Um, I think the relationship between black there is a mistrust between the black community and media. Mm. Um, whether it be from the news, you know, I was specifically lifestyle journalism, right. but I think, you know, journalism as a whole, there's been a lot of mistrust, there's been a lot of misrepresentation. Mm. So, and then the other the other thing apart from mistrust and misrepresentation is lack of representation. Mm. So I do think there is this thing of, one, am I welcome in the industry? Yeah. And then two, if I get into the industry, what are the battles that I'm going to be fighting? Mm. And I think, you know, What's come out of, you know, the conversation that Black Britons have been having, you know, getting to like the next, the last, over the last decade yeah. is that I don't think we are willing to put up with jobs where we're constantly battling all mm-hmm. the time um, at the detriment of our mental health. You know, the journalism industry, I can speak from my own experience, racism is rife mm. and you're not going to work to have have those moments um you are going to work to make money to pay your bills yeah. and hopefully enjoy your job and then on top of that have a purpose and i think mm. a lot of black black journalists we get into it for a very purpose-driven reason it's not necessarily about the glitz and the glamour for yeah. some it is but a lot of it is for us is to tell our stories mm. but it's really hard if you're a black man or woman when you're trying to tell stories from the black community and your white editor is just saying i don't get it yeah. i don't think it's relevant to mm. our audience and then you kind of just be like well what's the point of even being here anyways mm. so i think it's the mistrust it's the misrepresentation and then it's the representation and knowing that you are fighting battles to tell the stories that your community needs to right. hear and i think that's mass that's a massive problem mm. with the journalism industry that needs to change um, and i think that's why i love black ballad so much is that i work with black people which mm-hmm. is great but you know my head of editorial my my you know our editorial team and you know anyone that's in the black ballad team they're not fighting to have stories you know published on the site because they're black mm. we are just saying is this it's like okay well we've told this story before so we're not going to tell it again yeah or do you think it's right for this audience you mm. know writers come to black ballad knowing that if they're gonna if their eyes been if the idea has been rejected it's been rejected on pure merit mm-hmm. not because it's a black story because it's a black and, story you know work is about merit and that's mm. fair so i think those are the things that, that the misrepresentation, as I say, representation and, tr- mm. and trust are kind of the barriers that black journalists, regardless of gender and sex, 
probably face a, a battle. Mm, I can imagine that that's very difficult to deal with just as a lived, like as a black woman, generally speaking to white people, sometimes it's a very invalidating experience when you try and speak on experiences you've had or your perception of the world and reality and being told that it just, it doesn't really resonate mm. with them. So how, when that's kind of such a intricate part of your work, how do you kind of manage your mental health and not let that affect you too much? So yeah, it's really interesting. So my job now, apart from being CEO, I deal with like brand partnerships. Mm. So I talk to a lot of brands who want to reach this audience. So I have to be very aware is of like, is this the right brand or company to be working with? Mm. I'm very public in saying I don't work with the Metropolitan Police. I've had multiple mm. emails of like, we'd love to work with you. There's no <laughs> check you can show me in this Stop life. trying. That will make me, that would make that battle of work with Metropolitan mm. Police in any capacity. So there's always that thing of, okay, well, is it the right brand for me to even be in the conversation mm. with you anyway? So I'm going to have to put up, if I'm going to have to, not always put up with you, but if I'm going to have to have the conversation, yeah. let's check you're the right mm. brand and company for Black Ballad in the first place. And then what I think is really good is because people know that Black Ballad is so for Black women, mm. like it's like Black women and then it's the Black community after that, mm. people kind of come in knowing what they're getting. Right. So for me, I don't have to deal with a lot of stress like that. Mm. People know, like no one's asking me, is it for women of colour? It's never going to happen mm. because... It's just not happening. Mm -hmm. um, people have a question like, oh, okay, you know, do you reach black men or do you reach, you know, black non-binary people? Mm. And they're very fair questions. Mm. And I'm very open in saying we do, but black women are our priority. Yeah. So people come in knowing that black women and the wider black community are our priority. Mm. So I don't actually have to deal with a lot of conversations like that. Nice. Um, and when I do, or when the team does, I'm always one to deal with it. I don't think my team should be dealing with that. Mm. There's, you know, it's just not their job yeah. to be dealing with that. So that's on me to deal with it. Um, and I always, before I go into these conversations, I always tell everybody, if you're working with me, you have to know that you're working with me mm. because I have a skill set. I reach an audience that you just do not have. Yeah. So if we're going to have that conversation, we need to lay that on the table, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to come into a conversation and tell me I think black women want it that way mm. when not because I'm a black woman, but because for 10 years I've been listening to black yeah. women. I have a lot of data. I have a lot of conversations across phone, across surveys, which tell me what black women want. Mm. So there's no way you can rifle me. You can, you can, you know, you can, I guess make me think that I don't know what I'm talking about. Right, yeah. You, I know what I'm talking about. I'm very mm. sure in it. And people tend to trust that. I mm. think when you kind of lay out what you're bringing to the table, I think it kind of makes people be like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, we're not playing. We're not playing <laughs> um, so that's how I do it. And I think if you're going to be too much, I kind of, I have been known to say that maybe this is just not going to work. Okay. Um, and I'm, and the reason I, I'm, I say that more than ever is actually because of my children. I'm a mum now. Mm. So my mental health has to always be at its best so I can give to my children right. because my children are my biggest priority. Mm. And I feel like I don't ever want to be at dinner 
thinking about a client that said something that's got on my nerves yeah. when I should be enjoying my children. Mm. And so I'm very quick to be like, yeah, maybe this is not going to work. Yeah. If it's bringing stress, then it's not worth the stress. It's too expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um it, it's interesting that you mentioned being a mom because I was going to ask you about this when you mentioned it at the beginning. But how have you gone about balancing being a mom of two children which is like it's it's a whole full-time job and then also being a ceo at the same time which is another full-time job like you didn't pick an easy trajectory at all um i don't balance Mm. i don't um the kids are the priority and everything else is secondary Mm. so that means that you know i have a combination of you know my kids go to nursery and then my my mom and um, my in-laws help with childcare. so you know, there are days in the week where I don't actually work because mm. I actually like to spend the whole day with my kids mm. and like we go out and we do things. Um, but there is no balance. I'll be honest. I don't sleep a lot. Mm. I don't sleep as much as I should. Mm. Um, I'm, I don't have nannies. Like I don't have like, I, I don't have in-house help like right. that. So I'm not going to pretend. So it is a lot of um, being very present for when the kids are there. I try and make sure... Um, when I have to work, like my husband won't work. So okay. we try to make sure one parent is always present. But I'm also very honest, especially my daughter. She's she's my oldest, she's three. And I say like, mommy's working. So she actually knows. And I also want her mm. to know that I do work. <laughs> like work, You're not just chilling. <laughs> I work as a part of life. Yeah. Um. So there's no balance. It's lack of sleep. It's mm. just knowing. And unfortunately, I'm going to drop the ball at one point. Yeah, I'm just gonna like something's gonna come in. Something's gonna be turned in late. Mm, mm-hmm. Like something is gonna, and I usually just say, "Look, listen, I'm really sorry." And I'm actually really honest with people. I'll just be like, "Due to childcare, I can't do this date. Can we do another day?" Yeah. Um. So it's just lack of balance, lack of sleep, um, and just being aware of limits and yeah. just keeping the kids the priority. Those are just what I try to follow. Mm. This, I wish, I wish I could give listeners like an amazing answer and like <laughs> a combination especially if anyone's thinking of having kids or mm. has kids but it's really just I mean that's the reality of it is that having kids is literally a full-time job so if you're working alongside that you're working at double capacity which we're not really built to do anyways so it's inevitable that it's not it's a balancing act that can't really be balanced you know yeah someone gave me some great advice someone who is actually someone I work with and they was like they will just because they work they're never gonna let anyone say they're not a full-time mum mm. Because there is that whole thing of, well, if you work, you're not a full-time mum. Yes, I am a full-time mum. Mm. <laughs> full-time mum in part-time hours. Like. Yeah, I'm a full-time mum and I work. So mm. I just, and also like, I think you just have to be at peace. You're doing your best. Yeah. Um, My work is really important to me because I think also um, it's part of my identity. Mm. And, you know, it's about being the best for your children. And I think if I didn't work, I'd be unhappy. Yeah. And that's not great for my children either. Mm. So... Yeah, it swings around roundabouts, I guess. Oh, well, it's something to look to, like for other people who are either thinking of having kids, have kids, or just would like to know what it's like to balance motherhood and yeah. also kind of reaching great heights in your professional career. I mean, you seem to have done a great job, so congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Speaking of children, going to your childhood. So from my understanding, your upbringing was relatively unconventional, but correct me if I'm wrong at any point. So you were born to Nigerian parents, yep. but then were adopted by the woman who minded you while your biological parents were kind of working and yeah. um, kind of settling in the UK. 
And then it's my understanding that you have a re- had a relationship with your biological parents until you were about six and then they moved back to Nigeria. Yep. And then you stayed here with the woman who minded you and her partner um, and were adopted by them and stayed in the UK. Is that right? So, yeah, roughly. So basically there was a, a common trend um, for Nigerian parents in particular who came in like the 80s and early 90s um, where they would while they were settling here, they would work in the week and leave their kids with a white family. So it's kind of like privately fostering. Okay, right. Um, and I was one of those kids. There's a horrible term called farming for it. I hate the term. Mm. I don't know why it's called farming. Um, but it's very yeah. common. Um, it's more common than I think people think. So when I was six, my uh, Nigerian parents went back to Nigeria and they just asked me if I wanted to stay here mm. or go back to Nigeria and I said I wanted to stay. Yeah. Um, so the... People that are my parents that have brought me up, they're a white married couple. Mm. Um, and they have brought me up my whole life. Like my mum is the person that looks after my kids. Mm. But I have a good relationship with my biological mum, um, who's in Nigeria. We talk each week. Okay. Um, and then like my mum who's brought me up, who's white, we talk every day. Um, mm. So it is an unconventional upbringing, but I think it's been imperative to the work um, that I do and I think it's also I've had a very close up lens to whiteness mm. um, I would definitely say before I go on I think I feel very blessed because a lot of these stories don't turn out very well mm. a lot of them um, you know you hear some real horror stories right. um, but I was very blessed in finding having a couple that were you know just amazing my mum is super supportive of the work I do mm. she's the sort of person I tell her like as a white woman you don't need to tell a black woman about black ballad <laughs> it's okay <laughs> um so yeah and um I think you know my dad who's passed now mm. um I think he really attempted to try and have a decent understanding of race relations i think it helps that i grew up in east london my mm. school was very multicultural right. um so my dad i remember my dad having a real honest conversation about you know you know we're different and that my path in life might be a little bit more difficult mm. because we're di- we're different it's no it's wow. no different to black parents who tell kids you're gonna have to work twice as hard right yeah it's just kind of right now i'm I think it was a blessing because, you know, there was no way I could walk through life thinking that my experience was going to be the same mm-hmm. as theirs. It would be foolish. And I yeah. think, you know, when it was quite appropriate in very early secondary school and primary school, we had a conversation. Mm. And I think that was very healthy for me in terms of my identity mm. and perception of how black blackness and whiteness work in this life. Wow, that's a very, I mean, it's one thing to tell your kids that you'll have to work twice as hard as a black parent, but then to be able to say your life might be a bit more difficult shows like an acknowledgement of the privilege that's like intrinsic within race relations as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, did did they get it right all the time? No, yeah, no, mm. but I think they did a, a decent enough job. As I said, I'm one of the very blessed ones. I don't know if I would stand here on a on a box and be like, I think this is something that, you know, I would advocate for <laughs> um, because I think there's too many stories of where it's gone wrong. Right. Um, so I'm very clear in saying I've had a really great experience, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to be an advocate for 
in yeah. this situation. Two things can be true at once. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how did this like kind of hybrid upbringing, especially in your earlier years? Um, so like living with your Nigerian parents on the weekend with your white family during the week. How did this hybrid upbringing kind of affect your identity, especially considering that your work is very centered around black women, black Britishhood? Um, yeah. In the beginning, I think it did. I think as kids, I don't think you notice too much. I'll be yeah. honest. I think you're I, just like going with the flow. <laughs> we do. I think, you know, I always say it about my children um, and some people are surprised about this. I don't read them books about racism. Mm. I've, they have every book is black. I make it, my friends always laugh at me. We don't have white toys. We don't have like white books, but it's always very positive, joyous black stories. Like it's not like I'm introducing them to racism and it's not like, you know, I was like, I just, maybe I was unaware, but I think as a kid, I think you kind of have more to worry about than, okay, you're black, you're white. You're kind Mm. of worrying about who's going to play with you in the playground. (laughs) That was kind of just. Main priority. I think. In my teens, that's when I think the penny started dropping mm. in terms of when I started to <clears throat> look at whiteness and blackness and, and, and look at my lived experience to my mum's lived experience. Mm. That was when, yeah, it started to kind of be like, okay, this is something that I need to be very aware of. Yeah. yeah. And how did you kind of go about cementing your black womanhood and kind of getting that sense of identity because I think what I've what I've realized recently or I guess known for a while is that like our blackhood is very much something that's passed to us orally through our parents and so if we're not if we don't have the opportunity to get that from our parents it's really difficult to kind of get a sense of um of the oral history that you would you would otherwise get right so how did you go about kind of getting that when you didn't have necessarily that access yeah. to your parents as much so two things so my dad's my biological dad's older sister mm. lives here okay so i would see her every week okay nice. and like my i'm really good i'm i'm quite close to my cousin mm. um so i'd see them every week Right. So, so you had family. Be, yeah, I had family here. It wasn't. It wasn't like I was absolutely deserted. Mm. I had family here that were like a ten minute walk away. <laughs> so like I was there a lot. Mm. So I spent a lot of time with them. Mm. Um. So that was just there. You know, yeah. if I wanted to go to you know my auntie's house, my kids. If nice. I wanted to spend time with my cousin, the kids. Mm. Like it was a yeah. So I was there like every week. so I had that and then the other thing was I had a really unique um school experience that the majority of my teachers were black women oh which is something we love to see it everyone's really shocked at like in terms of I always say like two of my teachers miss my head of year Mm. Miss Jibana and then my English teacher called Miss Rowe one was a Nigerian teacher Nigerian and one was um Jamaican integral integral wow. like in terms of still talk to them still in touch with them mm. absolutely integral my whole science department by one teacher was black my form tutor was a black man my principal was a black woman wow like when people like me and my two best friends from school we're so shocked when people say they don't have black teachers because we mm. thought teachers were black we're just like that's my profession like, you know how <laughs> people associate nursing with black yeah. women i associate teaching with black <laughs> because and also like they weren't talking to you like you were students. You were their, you like you were their kids. Yeah. They were talking to you like they were your kids. So, um, yeah, as I said, English teacher was black. I had a black PE teacher. Mm. Both my drama teachers were black. 
Oh my god! I had my geography teacher was black. My one of my humanities teacher was Somalian. So I and my school was blackly black, black, black. Like Damn. we were the majority. <laughs> so there was that. So. I didn't really miss out. Um, As I said, like my auntie and my cousins were integral because Mm. I had family here. And then I went to school. (laughs) In a sea of black people, apparently. So yeah. So like when I went to uni and I was like one of two black people in the class, it was so strange. Mm. And then even when I went to sixth form, actually, and everyone was white. I couldn't believe it. I was like, where are the black... T-? Like, this was just so, like... It was so strange. Mm. Um, especially because people... Some people go to unis and colleges where there's more black people because they've yeah. not had that experience. Exactly. Mine was the reverse. Um, right. And as I said, in, in the WhatsApp group, still to this day, like, my two best friends will be like, I, I can't believe all teachers are not black. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so weird to us. That is crazy. I don't think I had... I've never had a single black teacher. That's crazy. Throughout, like, throughout university, masters, everything, I've never been taught by a black person. So no. that's incredible textiles teachers it's because they're all teaching at your school yeah food tech was black yeah like it's just yeah and like teachers of color as well like my maths teacher was asian so not black but you know like it's just i definitely like didn't have like i didn't have an overwhelmingly white Mm. education interesting and so when you went to uni and you're one of two black people what was that experience like because i know from experience that when you're the only black person or the only black people in a room it can kind of have like a very like unignorable effect on like how you feel in that space and your safety in that space and how you feel you can interact with people did you kind of have like any experience no do you know what um so I was one of two black people in my university class and the black girl that I went to university, she's one of my best friends. Mm-hmm. She was my at my wedding. She's my, my son's godmom. She's Aww. one of my best friends. So it allowed me to form a deep sisterhood with mm. someone that I speak to every day um, via WhatsApp or Instagram. Yeah. So I'm actually very grateful in a way that it gave me an opportunity to find a lifelong friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, it wasn't, and to be fair, I feel like if I have something to say, I'll just say it. And But I also think in a way, it didn't affect me because on the other side, I also grew up in a white family. Mm. So it's not like I was going and being like, yeah, education is like very different. Yeah. But I have grown up in a white family. Yeah. I it, So it's not like... So I know how to navigate that. Yeah. So I guess in a way... I had a really interesting, I've had, I've had snippets of both worlds. Mm. And so navigating both worlds does not phase me. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's a really valuable kind of, I don't even know if you would call it a skill, but kind of a quality to have, especially living in Britain, which is such a mixed country. It's such a melting pot and you're inevitably, especially projecting through your career and the higher you go in your career the more the spaces you occupy are going to be white dominated spaces just inevitably so it's really really valuable that you're able to not have to overcome that because I think a lot of people do have to kind of overcome that hurdle yeah um at some point so you've kind of you've been shaped by your your upbringing it sounds like this really like unconventional upbringing how do you feel like it's impacted the trajectory of your career and do you feel like there were any maybe lessons that you learned early on in life that prepared you or kind of helped or protected you throughout your career journey? I think what's really interesting is um, 
knowing how differently people treat me and my mum. So she can go to a shop and just say, you know, when you get older, you want something and you're like, well, no, you've asked for this already. So if you want that, you're going to pay for it yourself. Mm. And people not knowing that we're together Mm. and seeing how people talk to her and how they talk to me. Mm. That's a very interesting experience. I always say it's so trivial, but beauty is a great experience. My mum could go to any counter. Whereas when I wanted to first get into beauty, we went to Debenhams and Oxford Street and went straight to Fashion Fair. And Mm. that was the only option that I had. Mm. Whereas she could go to any counter. So even just, okay, cool. Like our shopping experiences are different. Mm. People talk to her differently. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm always aware of when talking to white people, you know, if it, especially I'll say in a client situation, mm-hmm. if you're working with us and you're working with a white publication, I'm always going to get the best because I'm like, did you offer that person the same? Mm. Because I'm automatically aware that you may have spoken to them differently. Mm-hmm. And that's just because I've been brought up by my mum. And also I think one thing about my, you know, the privilege of white women is that they I always say privilege, for me anyways, Mm. is believing the world should work in the way that it should for you. Mm -hmm. Like you will go to the doctors and you will say, I feel sick and the doctor will take you seriously. Yeah. I will go to the doctors and probably have to prove. Mm. My mum has been always been like, nope, be defiant. Like you, you know, there's never been a bit that she's never had that thing of, you might need to speak in a lower tone to get what you want. Mm. Like she doesn't do that. Yeah. And she doesn't think I should do that. Mm. So I think sometimes that boldness actually mm. probably does come from that sort of upbringing of like, well, no, like she doesn't do it. Why would I Why do, do it? it? It's not always worked, but it has worked a lot of mm. the time for me, surprisingly. <laughs> um, so I think those have been some lessons that I've learned. Um, but then on the other side, dealing with white women mm. and understanding pressure points and knowing how, you know, not, I'm not saying my mum in particular, but obviously she has friends and seeing yeah. how they operate and seeing and he, overhearing conversations, you kind of work out if you want something or if you're involved in a conversation, here are some of the patterns that might go in terms of conversations. Mm. So it's been an, it's been a, it's been an interesting upbringing in in, in that way in yeah. that learning and having a very close up relationship with you know white women mm. and when I say white women because I know there'll be some white women listening I'm not because sometimes you have to be very clear <laughs> I'm not saying that all white women are the same I've met some incredible white women who have been integral mm. to my mentorship you know my mentors are actually my mentors are white women who have been mm. integral in helping me and navigate things and also tell me things that I would never know because yeah. they've actually been in in the field because mm. also another thing is where black women have been so you know we don't get investment we're mm-hmm. not we don't get the top jobs you know learning from them has been integral so when I go into meetings they're telling me you know if I'm charging you I'm just gonna say a pound they're charging a tenner and they're mm. saying charge 10 pounds and don't go below eight. Mm-hmm. And that's really integral to have that experience yeah. because, you know, sometimes black women, not because they're not qualified, they don't have the opportunity to mm. be there so they can't pass it down. Um, so I do think there has been some valuable lessons in making sure that you get experience and get 
have conversations with white women in that way. Yeah. I think it's important to like recognize the allyship or um, like mutual kind of benefit that can exist between white and black women, like beyond the kind of historical mm-hmm. um, like boundaries that have been placed between us. Mm-hmm. We're all women at the end of the day. And there's like something really strong in that. And mm-hmm. that sisterhood can cross racial boundaries sometimes depending on the person in particular (laughs) yeah (laughs) so you've spoken at um university you're a public speaker now as well you've added that to your repertoire you've spoken at universities including cambridge you've done a ted talk you've done um a talk for you've been a panelist for bbc one extra you've done speaking you speak (laughs) so how did that um how did that cross over into public speaking come about from print to oral I think it was because, you know, in 20, 2014, um, the race conversation was kind of, as I said, it was kind of just getting off the ground mm. in terms of the internet. I know Renée Lodge was writing a lot of that time and doing stuff in the feminism movement. I hope I've got my dates right, but I'm pretty sure around that time she was. I think because this kind of conversation around, like, race was just starting and diversity people kind of needed a black woman. Mm. And if you knew Black Ballad, it was very easy to kind of be like, you just want to speak. Mm. Um, so I guess in terms of Black, be- black Ballad being so visible at the time mm. and like, you know, you also had Geldem. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of choice, right? <laughs> it was kind of mm. like, if you wanted a black woman, you're kind of looking at people in Geldem that were black or you're looking at Black Ballad. Mm. And I think because there wasn't a lot of choice it kind of just felt that I got opportunities. Right. Um, and I'm just being very honest mm. here. But over time, I perfected and I've made sure that yesterday's price is not today's price when mm. I'm speaking. Like I, when I knew the opportunities of public speaking were going to come, I made sure I put in the work to make sure that I could present my story, present my arguments really, really well. Mm. Um, because you know, public speaking is a job yeah. and it takes, if you take it seriously, it takes a lot of time mm-hmm. um, to prepare sometimes. So yeah, it was just a case of at the time the race, con- it was, yeah, serendipity, I guess the race conversation was getting mm. started. I think my first big thing was um, at the uh, NUS Scotland women's convention. Mm. Um, and obviously it was Scotland and they had quite like, you know, the, the female students there were quite diverse racially okay. and they wanted a black speaker they wanted you know someone of color and they were just like oh would you would you do it and I was like yeah why not I get to go to Scotland mm. well I don't mind um so yeah it was just opportunities it was timing and then it was like once people started asking me it was like okay cool I might be pretty decent at this mm. and then putting in the work and the opportunities just, just kept coming since nice and so like what kind of practical work did you put in to kind of strengthen your ability to public speak because I don't think it's like a god-given talent to everyone watched speakers Mm. watched people that I think speak really really well Mm. um I my degree is actually in American studies okay so and then I specialized in like African-American history so I got to hear a lot like I'm not going to speak like Martin Luther King (laughs) (laughs) um But like you kind of listen to speech of the day. And also, you know, 20, you know, I started my degree in 2008. So that was the Obama, Mm. you know, I did American studies. Yeah, Obama went to office, which was great. Yeah, phenomenal timing. Um, 
But he's an incredible orator. Yeah. And Michelle Obama's actually an incredible orator. They pause at the right times. But it's very authentic mm. to them. So just watching people. I watched a lot of TED Talks. Mm. Um, I think the best... Oh, my God. I can't believe I've forgotten her name. Um, she's a black woman. She's married to George Lucas. And I don't know why I've forgotten her name. Um, I didn't know George Lucas was married to a black woman. Yeah, he is. Is it Holly? Um, I can't remember her name. She has the best TED Talk of all time. I don't mm. care what anyone says. Not just the story, the way she engages, the way she's so aware of her space. But I think it's important when you're doing talks and public speaking mm. that you don't you don't imitate someone else mm. than your, yourself. But just looking at and I, and I was very specific to look at black talkers mm. as well, mm. black people that spoke. Um, and I just watched a lot of panels. I just watched a lot of talk shows, how people put themselves across. And like, I think that just really helped. And also I watched, I watched a lot of crap people. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and if you can do that, I definitely can do that. Yeah. Um, but TED Talk was a massive thing at the time when, mm. you know, when I was starting Black Ballad. Um, so I watched a lot of TED Talks, as I said, I, I th- I was, you know, I was a student in the era of the Obamas where they were electrifying yeah. audiences. Um, so, yeah, I just, I just, I just watched a lot of people. For my TED Talk, mm. I rehearsed. I rehearsed. Like, people came, came up to me and said, oh, my God, it was amazing. It was effortless. I rehearsed. <laughs> it was not effortless. I, it, was, it was not effortless. <laughs> I rehearsed so much. Like, I think for a month, my mum heard that TED Talk every night in our front room <laughs> I rehearsed I rehearsed I rehearsed mm. because I was so adamant I wasn't gonna do it with paper mm. I wasn't gonna read the script and I didn't want to be the person that forgot it on the day I rehearsed like my like my my mum and my husband who's my fiance at the time they heard that TED talk every day for <laughs> even my my husband's little sister mm. she was like I think like 10 at the time I rehearsed in front of her. Like I rehearsed in front of so many different people to see people's reactions, yeah. to see when I should pause, to when people were like drifting off. Mm. Like I rehearsed that TED talk to death. Mm. <laughs> and I said, I don't know if I'd ever do another one yeah. because if I had ki- I wouldn't be able to do it now with the kids. I wouldn't it's be able to do that effort. time. But I'd seen so many TED talks where I just felt people were just unprepared mm. and like they didn't want to be there. And it's an opportunity. Mm. Um, it's an opportunity, not just because of what can come off of it, but you're you're selling yourself. Yeah. You're actually selling yourself and you're selling your brand, your business or your company mm. or whatever you're passionate about. And you've got one shot. Mm-hmm. And I was not going to muck it up. So watching people and practicing, and those are the two practical things I will say. If you're going to do public speaking, yeah. watch people and practice. Practice, practice. It's interesting that you say that because people obviously said like after you'd done the TED talk that it came off as really confident and effortless. And But it's because you prepared it so much that you were able to deliver it in a way that came across with so much confidence that it seemed almost effortless. Yeah, but I think like, well, even like Obama, I remember like reading something, his speech has changed so many times. Mm. Like so many people go over it. Like it, it's, and he rehearses like Michelle Obama, they have, they have speech writers for a reason yeah. and it is a team. It is not just one person, mm. it is a team and people go over every line, you know, and they rehearse it. Mm. Um, and I think there is, I think 
there's a power in being honest about things that are not effortless. Yeah. Like, no one's an overnight success. Mm. It takes a lot of hard work. Um, and as I said, that TED talk, I I was I was doing a course at Goldsmiths actually at the time. Mm. I ended up missing the last two weeks or three weeks because I mm. wanted to rehearse my TED talks. I didn't get my certificate. I got engaged and mm. I remember telling everyone, okay, you can have a day to celebrate. I don't want to hear about my engagement. I need to rehearse for my TED talk. Mm. Like I was that focused on it. Like in terms of, I am very open about the fact of that everything that I do, it, it's not an overnight success. Yeah. It is a lot. I, I put in a lot of work mm. to be, to be where I am because I actually don't believe talent's the winning thing. Mm-hmm. I don't. Talent fades. Yeah. And people can brush up on their skill sets and be just as talented as you. Mm. It really is hard work. Mm-hmm. That's what sets people apart. Yeah. There's a lot of talented people, but it's about whether you're ready to put in the hard work. Listen, yeah. <laughs> people don't want to hear that. I know. Um, but it's true. You just can't mm. turn up. Yeah. But speaking of hard work, you have been awarded a couple of times in recognition of your hard work. So congratulations Thank on you. that. So you were awarded the King's Alumni Impact Award um, for the Outstanding Leadership and Service in 2021. Yep. You were on the Forbes Europe 30 Under 30 list for media and marketing in I'm 2018. No fake, though, but yeah. <laughs> you were when the list was made. That's I what's important. Yeah, <laughs> so what does it mean for you to have your work recognized like this? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not, it, it's, it's nice, mm. but... I think, uh, yeah, I think for me, um, black women buying memberships is the biggest reward. Yeah. In 2021, we ran a community crowdfund and we raised £200,000 mm. from black women who invested from £14,000 up to £5,000. That is That's what, incredible. That is what I'm proud of. Yeah. The awards and achievements, they're great and I'm very grateful for them. Mm. But I just don't believe that that's going to help me sustain a thriving business and mm-hmm. I think sometimes and also I'm very careful about overshooting them and where they are in in recognition because sometimes awards can make us kind of align kind of put whiteness on a pedestal mm. I think sometimes we we yeah. go after awards because I always question I always question why I'm an overthinker why do I want this award why is it so important mm-hmm. to me why am I trying to align with this? And yeah. like, for the King's Award, that meant so much because I was a King's student. Black mm. Ballad started when I was at King's. I always say, if I'm going to do any university work, it will only be for King's because yeah. that's the uni I went to. Mm. That's what opened my eyes to being like, America has a race conversation, but where is it in Britain? Yeah. And where am I in it? So for me, I'm incredibly grateful for King's because without King's, there'd be no Black Ballad. Mm. So to me... That award and like there's an illustration of me on a building that means a lot because mm. of what it means to my journey. Yeah, I'll be honest. Forbes. Now looking back on it, I'm kind of like, yeah, it was good, but I don't know if Black women cared, if my members cared, not like mm-hmm. that, but like it was kind of like the craft I meant more so much more to them. Yeah, and that means it means more to me. Mm. Um, so. It's nice to be recognised and I'm always grateful in the moment of looking back. Mm. But there are other things that I've done that I feel just mean so much more to me. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And as remarkable and well-deserved these awards are, 
like from your story, it's clear that they weren't like, they didn't just come up overnight. Like there was a lot of graft and hard work behind them. Yeah. And I think the thing is, it sounds, this may be ego. I feel deserving. Mm, mm. I feel deserving of the work. The things I do in BB, I don't always feel deserving of them because we're not a perfect business, but black women still rock with us. They still you know, if we make a mistake, they're still here with us. Mm. So I don't always feel deserving. And also in a living crisis, the mm. black women are paying their money to be a member of Black Ballad. I'm incredibly grateful because let's be honest, yeah. us, us, you know, people, you know, every food brand's like, you know, fit for a king when everyone's living not like kings right now. Yeah. I'm grateful for black women still thinking that Black Ballad is an integral part of their budget. Mm. And that's when I don't think yeah. I'm deserving of. But those awards, I'm damn well deserving because mm. I worked hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how I feel about it. Amen to that. It's um, it's really important as well. I think that you can recognize that as much as it's a paid membership service and um, that that it deserves to be a paid membership service and that that's a really integral part of the business model, that it is a cost of living crisis and that it's like having any kind of disposable income going towards your business is... It says a lot about how people, how highly people rate Black Ballad. <laughs> so on the backdrop of all of the hard work that you've done to get these awards and get this recognition, get the um, followership that you have, what obstacles, what are the main obstacles that you've had to overcome throughout your career? And have those kind of changed as you've gotten to different stages of your career? Money. <laughs> Money is always hard. When we first did Black Ballad, um, I remember I walked into, I somehow managed to get a meeting with an advertising agency. Mm. And I remember them looking and saying, like, if we want to reach black women, we will talk to, I'm not going to say the publication, ex-publication. It's still going, it's the main publication, but it's white, it's middle class. Mm. Because there might be a few black women that pick mm. it up. So no one was going to give me money for black ballad in that way. Um, and then I think... Because no one's going to give us money, we had to think for alternative business, um, an alternative business model, mm. which was the membership. So then we had to kind of think about, okay, so how do we convince black women to give us money for a mm. membership? Because at the time, no other lifestyle brand had actually had a paywall. People don't know this, but I think it's, I think, I don't usually say we're first for a lot mm. of things. I think we were the first lifestyle publication in Britain to have a paywall. So we were doing something that no one else was doing. Wow. Everyone told me it was not going to work. So we went from being rejected to advertisers for money now mm. to asking black women for money. Mm. Membership worked, overcame that hurdle. And then it is um, investment. Yeah. This is growing and we need more hands to the deck. We need to improve tech. Mm. And then you're going into conversation with investors mm. who, investors are white. Mm. Black ballot is not their problem. Investors invest in things that they can relate to. Their pattern matches. So if, you know, media representation and community is not a problem for them, then why should they invest in it? Yeah. And you're having to convince people to give you money. Mm. Money has been the biggest obstacle. I have amazing, obviously with the crowdfund investors, you know, over 1,300 black women, you know, invested. Amazing. I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, but, you know, I have an amazing set of private angels, mm. um, black men, some black women who gave higher than £5,000 and, and um, a white guy. Mm. Um, so money is the biggest obstacle. And then, you know, media is going through a hard time currently. I know just today it came, 
I don't, if, if you know media, then it's no surprise. You know, Vice mm-hmm. like over filing for bankruptcy. Oh, so it's just about how do you make sure you're a sustainable business? Mm. Um, and I'm really proud that you know next year's our ten year anniversary. That you know this independent black owned media company has stayed independent. Mm. It stayed black owned. Um, you know, there's there are some allies in the crowdfund who yeah. are not black, but we are majority black owned because Amazing. I and my co-founder still own the majority of the business. Mm. You know, most of the investors are black. Um, and we've managed to still tell the stories we want on our own terms. Mm. Um, and we've managed to work out, I think, a pretty good business model that is I'll be honest, in this year, we'll help, we'll ensure we survive. Mm. But in previous years, have seen us thrive. Mm. I'm just being honest, you know, it's no it's no secret that this is a hard climate yeah. for any business. Add in a media business, mm. add in a black mm-hmm. media business that is t- targeting black people, yeah. specifically black women. Mm. There are challenges. Yeah. But the business model we've got will ensure that we survive this year. Yeah, well, we hope to see it. I mean, I know Galdem had to close their doors recently, mm-hmm. which is really sad. So it's um, it's interesting and really sad seeing how that this cost of living crisis and just like the kind of state of the world right now, I don't really recognize how it affects people differently or different industries differently. But it's definitely um, the reality that black female based industries, whether it be in journalism, media, any anything really are being affected disproportionately. Yeah. Um so the survival of Black Ballad is something that we're looking forward to. Um what practical steps can you give someone who is where you were just before you started Black Ballad in 2014? Um what are you passionate about is the first thing. Mm. Like being really honest about what you're passionate about. I, I kind of looked at businesses and people's careers that I felt could be close to mine or what I aspired to be. Mm. Um, and then what are your weak spots? What are the skill sets you don't have? That's so important. Be honest about the skill sets you don't have mm. and go and find them and plug them. If you have to pay for them, pay for them. If you can have an exchange, have an exchange. But I would say find out what you're passionate about. Look at careers and businesses or companies you want to work for or create. And then be honest about your skill sets that you're missing. If you want a job at, I don't know, um, an estate agent, I'm just saying. If you feel that, you know, confidence is something you need to work on, take a class. Mm. Talk to people that are confident. Um, one of the things I did with Black Ballad is I assembled a team of people with skill sets that I didn't have. Because mm. to get it off the ground, I am not enough. And that's okay to recognise that you alone and your idea are not enough to get something off the ground or to get that job that you want sometimes. Mm. You need a little bit of help. Um, so definitely think about this. If you definitely feel going to be an entrepreneur, definitely think about the skill sets you're missing. Mm. That, what you just said about getting people with other skill sets or just recognising that you yourself might be lacking skill sets, I think it's, it's a really, really, even for me, it's a really helpful piece of advice that I don't think we get told very often. Um, there's this kind of idea that like you and your belief in something is like always going to be enough. And that's not necessarily true. Mm. Um, sometimes you did need more and recognizing that I think is a really important part of 
like growing a successful project, a successful whatever. It is, I kind of feel like it's like a car, right? Mm. It's your fuel and you might be, you know, but who, 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 sometimes you need to swap drivers. Mm. Sometimes you need a sat nav, mm. you know, you need someone like, I always say like the team now at BB, there's six of us and it's a, it's a team of people where I don't have their skill sets mm. and I can't do their jobs better than they, I can't, I, they, they are better at their jobs than I would ever be at their jobs. Right. I think what goes wrong with a lot of CEOs, you employ people and you can do the job better than them. Mm. And I have found it. And you're looking at them like, why are you not doing yeah. the work? Or why are you not performing? Because they don't even do the job half as well as you. Yeah. And they can't. Mm. And then they're in your company. And you're kind of thinking like, this just ain't working. Yeah. I always say employ superstars. Employ people who make you feel like you need to up your game. Mm. Like, I think where I've gone wrong is where I've employed people who don't make me feel like I need to up my game. Yeah. And that's always a massive mistake. Mm. Employ people that you believe are superstars, that you believe are worth investing in. Mm. So if they say they want to do a course to up their talent, you want to give them the money. Mm. You want to give them the time. Um, and as I said, I think that thing of where I was now, it still applies now actually mm. in terms of it's just a bit different because I'm employing people. Yeah. I have really learned hard lessons about employment and hiring and you should employ people that you think are superstars and that you think do could do the job or position mm. 10 times better than you ever could because yeah. it makes you want it makes you root for them as their as, mm. as the boss. Yeah, and it kind of you have like more more stake in the game, isn't it? When yeah. you really like when you're invested when you're invested in them, yeah. exactly. Um, so that's advice that you would give to someone who's where you were ten years ago. What advice would you give to your younger self starting off at any age? Really, what age would you want to advise yourself at, and what advice would that be? Oh, I would give my how old was I start black? So ten years ago, oh, I was twenty three when I started black ballad. Um, at 21, I would have started working on Black Ballad quicker. Mm. I would have started it quicker. I would have started it. I would have started the blog quicker. I would have really honed in and grown the audience quicker. Mm. Um, so 20, 21, I would have started Black Ballad quicker um, and made better use of connections and always had it in mind. I think if I was going back to advice when I was young, like 18, maybe like starting uni. Mm. What advice would I give myself? Um, save your money. <laughs> That's probably being honest. Or does it save your money more? Mm. Um, save money a bit more. I don't think I saved as much as I should. No, I didn't. So save your <laughs> money a bit more. But also, I think um, invest in yourself. Yeah. Take classes. Um, don't be, yeah, like I would have, I would invest in myself a lot more, like maybe taking some classes mm. beyond like my uni classes. Um, yeah, I think that's what we've done. Like when I, I traveled quite a lot, but I traveled a lot for pleasure, but maybe thinking about, I want to travel here, how would that helped me in my development. Yeah. So I would have just done a bit more investing both financially and in mm. myself with what mm. I would okay. give myself at 18. Mm, okay that's a good advice the point about traveling is very good advice i think we sure. all travel for pleasure but maybe we should travel for our self-development but, but as also, well if you want to travel for pleasure absolutely do it, mm -hmm. <laughs> do it. 
life is too short. Like traveling for pleasure is also cool. <laughs> and my last question for you. So what have the highlights of your career and life? Because I think that they're, they're linked, obviously. What have the highlights of your career and life been so far? And what are you looking forward to in your future? Highlight of my career definitely has to be the 2021 Cry Fund. Mm. I think to pull off raising 200,000 pounds from this community. Insane, that's incredible. It was some black women's first investment. We mm. had some Gen Zs with their first investment. Some who, it wasn't their first investment, which was even so like mind blown. I was like, yeah, I have someone, um, a, a young black girl, she's like 20. She was like, yeah, before this, I invested in Tesla. And I was like, you invest in Tesla and you invest in Tesla? <laughs> that's amazing. Um, but yeah, 2021 crowdfund. Um, when I've got the team right, when I've gotten the team right, mm. that's a highlight. Mm. When you get the team right and they do like amazing projects that you have no involvement mm. in, you're literally just saying yes or no to a budget. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes that makes, probably makes me unpopular in the team. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to give you that amount of money. <laughs> but when you get the team right and they produce amazing work mm. that your members love, yeah. that's a highlight because mm. it's definitely their win, but you know you got it right. And so getting the team, when I've got the team right, that's a massive thing for me. So I definitely think the crowdfund, get, when I've got the team right, that's been amazing. And in terms of my career, I'm sorry, my life has been my children. Mm. Um, my daughter was born um, the the first week of April in 2020. So the first, oh, so uh, like week right after lockdown, yeah. Lockdown. So she is, they're a pandemic She's baby. A baby. And they're a lockdown baby. Like she was a lockdown baby. Um, and then my son is 18 months. Um, so I had two kids in the pandemic. Mm. So I always say he's, he's like a pandemic, but he's not really, we was kind of, you know, out and about. Mm. Um, um, and if I'm honest, yeah, my kids and my husband, they are the highlight of my life. I try to not, I don't show my kids faces on socials. I don't mm. say their names. I've become quite protective of my marriage, mm. but I have a very healthy household in Aww. terms of, um, I think in a world of social media, it's really important to understand what is real or what's important. Mm. And I think my children and my husband, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of our small family mm. and the fact that we have a very happy household. I have a very healthy um, marriage and my kids are healthy. Mm. Um, I've grown two little humans one, my daughter has opinions. <laughs> she had a school, we had parents evening and she's three. And she's the first to say in, when they have votes, we don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. We want to do that. <laughs> and I'm very proud that my daughter is very bold and yeah. knows her voice at three. And she has a, the nursery that my kids go to, my son will be going to, is very different to the nursery I went to, mm. I went to, you know. Um, so, yeah. Definitely crowdfund and getting the team right career-wise, but overall, my kids and my my family is definitely the highlight of my Aww. life. That is so sweet. And what are you looking forward to in your future? Black Bella's 10 year anniversary next Ooh. year. We have to mark it. Mm. We have to mark it. I think, as I said, um, when I started Black Ballad, my husband's my co-founder, I don't think we thought, I don't think we thought we'd be doing this for 10 years. Mm. I do not, when I when I persuaded him to come on board as my business partner, 
I just don't think we thought we'd be here in 10 yeah. years. He, he'll probably say, I did. <laughs> but I just didn't. I just didn't think we'd get to that point, especially when you've had so many great yeah. media publications for this for this community, this demographic fold. I just didn't mm. think about it. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to traveling with my family. We went on holiday for Christmas. Oh. And my daughter absolutely can't stop that, going on airplanes and traveling <laughs> at three. Um, so, yeah, tra- taking my kids to see the world mm. and hopefully showing them different communities and, and having experiences out of this country is something that I think that's very important for everyone to have experiences out of this country. 100%. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Toby. It was a great interview. Thank you. You did an amazing job. Thank, oh, you, thank so you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. I think anyone listening to this, especially because there are so many people who want to go into like media journalism in the black community, um, I think this is a really, really valuable kind of conversation for a lot of people so thank you we're eternally grateful no, thank you yes said make me miss my journalism bag <laughs> thank you so much thank you for listening to the how did i get here podcast our episodes are released on the third wednesday of each month so make sure to tune in and don't forget to follow us at bca heritage on all social media platforms for information on what we have on If you liked our introduction and want to learn more, come visit our archives. Our reading room is open Wednesday to Friday and the first Saturday of every month. Check out the bottom of our website for the opening times and pay us a visit here in Brixton. And remember, culture is resilience. Diversity is resilience. Keep going and don't stop until you get there.